Thank you, brother. Everyone, if you would take your Bibles and turn to the minor prophet of Haggai, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 20 through 23. Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And today we will finish out this little prophecy, and then we will return to Joel in a few weeks. Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Once you found your place in God's word, please stand to your feet. We will read it together. Give honor to the word of the Lord. God's word says this. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray one more time. Father, we all need to hear from you. We are not gathered here to be entertained. We are not gathered here because of like hobbies or interests. None of that matters at this time. What matters right now, God, is that we are present with you. And you are here with us, speaking to us. May you enlighten our minds, Holy Spirit, and illuminate your word that we may receive what you have for us this morning. Father, may your church be blessed and edified. May they be corrected if needed be. May those who don't know Jesus Christ come to the reality that he is the sovereign maker of this universe and that he died and rose again to rescue people to himself. Father, for those that are sick and ailing and not here today, I pray that you would watch over their bodies and heal them. For those that have to work, may you keep them safe at their jobs. For those that are being lazy, may you prick their hearts, Lord, and stir them up into good works as this day is approaching. Father, we love you, or we worship and adore you. We thank you that newness of life is coming in its fullness and that we have newness now in our spirits while we await resurrection bodies and a resurrected creation. Until then, Lord, let us pay attention to your word, for we will do well to do so. May you be honored, may you be glorified, May you reign in our hearts and our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. The sermon is titled, When God Reigns. When God Reigns. We sang quite a few songs about that this morning. His kingdom now has come. Forever reign. The Ancient of Days. All these songs focus on this notion that God reigns. Under new management, we've all seen that sign over a restaurant which signals new leadership, maybe new prices, maybe better service, a slightly tweaked menu, maybe cleaner restrooms. Because don't nobody like to eat at a restroom or at a restaurant where the restrooms are filthy, right? When I was 17 years old, I worked at a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant in San Diego, called Abigail's Pantry. And my wife worked with me there. We were just boyfriend and girlfriend at that time. And they were mainly a breakfast place that featured food from New Zealand. There was a husband and wife team that owned the restaurant. Dale, the husband, was an ex-military dude. I I don't know what position he was in, but he was a tough guy. And his wife, Pat, was from New England. New, uh, New England, I'm sorry, New Zealand, and she had this heavy, thick New Zealand accent. And, uh, Dale, and ran, Dale ran this restaurant like a prison warden. I don't know if you've ever had a boss like that. Nobody liked working for the guy. He never laughed. He never smiled. He was always angry at, at nothing. Uh, he never made casual talk. He never said hi to you. He was just the owner, and you didn't want to look at him. And after working there for a while, I went off to college, and when I came back, one of the employees that had worked there had bought the restaurant from Dale and Pat. His name was Mike. He was a new owner. 
And everybody loved working for this guy. He was friendly. He fed us. And then he fed us. And then we ate and we ate and we ate. All right. He had a new menu. Right. We were open for dinners now and no longer just breakfast. And the employees were excited to work for this guy. On the one hand, you had a previous owner that ran it militantly and nobody liked. And then you had, on the other hand, a new owner under new management that everyone liked. Unfortunately, under both styles of leadership, neither succeeded. Nobody liked working for uh, a militant guy. And the guy that was overly generous and nice, uh, we ate all his profits. Right? So it didn't work. Right? We're all familiar with leadership change, whether it's at school or work or government, even in the church. Sometimes leadership change is good and sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it doesn't seem to make a difference. In our scripture today, we see that God is about to make a massive change within Judah to eventually bring them under proper leadership. You see, things have gotten bad for Judah some time. Let me give you the backdrop if you're not familiar with the little book of Haggai. Because of sinfulness, because of idolatry, the Lord allowed Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, the capital of Judah, he allowed Jerusalem to be sacked. He allowed the temple to be destroyed. The population of Judah was carried off into Babylonian captivity. After 70 years of captivity and their punishment from God, things were over. It was time for a period of restoration and grace from God. And so they're no longer under Babylonian rule because the Persians had risen up and overthrown the Babylonians and toppled them. And so now the Persians are in rule. The first king is a guy named Cyrus. And he allows the Jews to go home, to be deported back to their homeland. And they're going to be able to rebuild the temple and the city that was destroyed by the Babylonians over three attempts. And for the first couple years, as they're rebuilding, things were going pretty good. Opposition soon arose, though, for the Jews, the Jewish people, and they stopped doing what the Lord had called them to do. Sixteen years have passed now. Things have stalled. The progress and the work has stalled. And God has inflicted hardship upon them for their laziness and for their lack of attention to doing his mission. They're in a severe economic recession because of the discipline of God. And the Lord gives a message to Haggai, the prophet. Haggai is supposed to pass this message on to Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah, and to a guy named Joshua, who is the high priest. And then they are to pass the message on to the regular people of Judah. And the message from God is this. Is it time for you, Jewish people, for you, Judah, to continue building yourself nice houses? Well, my house, the temple, lies in ruins. He's trying to point out that their priorities are misplaced. And so he asked them to consider why it is that they are struggling financially. He says, you never have your needs met. Consider why this is, Judah. What you should do is you should go up to the hills, you should cut down some trees, and resume construction on my temple. The reason that you have so little is because my house lies in ruins. And I've caused drought to come upon your land. And I've caused the harvest to be a fraction, a fraction of what it should be. Rebuild my house and I will be pleased. That, in essence, is the message that God starts off with in the book of Haggai. Then Zerubbabel, the governor Judah, uh, of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest, they obeyed this message that God gave to Haggai and gave to them. They repent of their sin, and they, along with the rest of the people of Judah, begin to do what the Lord required them in about three and a half weeks. So they're moving towards that, and this is what takes place, okay? And so Scripture makes it clear in Haggai that the Lord was actually with them as they were doing this construction project. He was the one who stirred them up to do good works and to serve him. As they're in construction mode, four weeks into construction mode, discouragement sets in. Maybe for a couple of reasons. Number one, they are financially already broke, and now they have to amass more resources to do this temple project, which they didn't have very much resources. Number two, they're also in a very expensive month when it comes to feasts and festivals and, and religious holidays that required them uh, to, to do these things. Okay? But the Lord encourages them nevertheless. He says, don't, don't be discouraged. Instead, be strong, work hard, and do not fear, because I, the Lord, am with you. I am with you, Judah. Don't worry. 
and he would be with them as he covenanted to do. And then we see that they're wondering, how are we going to get all this done? And the Lord makes a really awesome promise. He says that he's going to shake the nations. He's going to shake the nations and cause them to contribute whatever it is that they need in order to rebuild this temple. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled. If you read Ezra chapter 6, the next Persian king, not Cyrus, but Darius, he's in charge. He funded and paid for the rebuilding of the temple with his treasury, with Persian money that they amassed when they conquered the nations. And so God fulfilled the prophecy. He said, I'm going to shake the nations and make them pay for it. And that's how he did it, through Persian king Darius and his conquering nations and amassing fortune through those nations. In doing so, God filled the temple with a beautiful glory, with, with jewels and, and precious metals and awesome things to glorify himself. But that glory, God says and shows us elsewhere in Scripture, that glory would never be eclipsed by the glory of himself. For in the Old Testament, you see God filling the temple with his presence, with his glory. And ultimately, it wasn't precious metals that would make the temple glorious. It would be God's presence. And this second temple was eventually filled with Jesus when he came and entered into it. And so that was the glory that was to come, not just one of beauty. It was Jesus in the flesh. And so in doing all of this, we see that God is the ruler of the the affairs of the Jewish people and all the nations and all of mankind, and he can fulfill his agenda however he sees fit. And I find it very interesting that God used pagan money to fund his gospel project. He took their own money and funded a gospel project, all right? This, this temple, this building that shows God's holiness, that shows the need for a mediator to bridge the gap between God and the Jewish people, that shows the need for a sacrifice to be made instead of the people dying before God for their sin, sacrifices are offered in their place. And so all this temple work would foreshadow what Jesus would do for us, that he is the true temple who offers himself as a high priest, the great high priest. He offers himself to God on our behalf, mediating so that we do not have to die and suffer the punishment of God. And so it all foreshadowed this work, this gospel project, and he funded it through unbelievers. I find that amazing. So ultimately, the temple that they're not building, they're busy building their own houses. The temple that lies in ruins was a picture of the work and the person of Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's why God wants it rebuilt. So God is on the move. He's stirring them up. He's pushing them towards this, okay? A few months pass by, all right, after, as they're building, a few months pass by, and God has another message. And he wants to use this message to encourage the people of God, to encourage Judah. And so what he does is, as they're doing all this, they've already repented, he points them and he says, I want you to remember what life was like when you disobeyed me. Remember how hard it was? And he's not trying to shame them. He's just trying to get them to recall and remember so that they won't forget, so that they will never want to go back there. And he says, remember how it was? Well, it's not going to be like that anymore. From now on, I will bless you. And so they have this amazing grace to look forward to as God is organizing and moving this entire construction project, okay? So because of their sin, they had tainted everything. They were offering sacrifices without a rebuilt temple, and God says, everything you did was wrong. You did it backwards. Therefore, you suffered the consequences of my judgment. But now that you've repented and you're doing things rightly as I command, you will be blessed from then. Okay, so they're back under the blessings of God. On this same day, God gives another message, all right? He gives the message to Haggai, and Haggai is to give it to Zerubbabel. And that's our text for today. Now, this text might seem like it's divided or not linked in any way whatsoever. It seems to be on a different page, but I assure you that it's not. We're going to go through a little bit of background eventually to help us piece this all together so that we can see what the text is getting at. And it is something else. It has to do with God reigning. All right? So the first thing we see in our text today is that when God reigns, the nations are overthrown. When God reigns, the nations are overthrown. Would somebody mind getting me an open cup of water? If, If you're able to, anybody, that would be wonderful. I would appreciate it. When God reigns, the nations are overthrown. 
So the message of God is given to Haggai. Haggai's name means festive. And certainly this is going to be a festive occasion, which we're reading about today. This message is also for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's name means sown in Babylon because that's where he was born. All right? So this message starts off with a familiar ring to it. All right? It's about the Lord shaking the nations, shaking the heavens and the earth, I should say. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. So here we see this phrase again. The first time it's used, it was used to show that the Lord would cause, thank you, brother, the Lord would cause the nations to send wealth to the Jews in order to rebuild the temple. So if you take just a second and backtrack in Haggai, you'll see that the Lord is going to shake the heavens and the earth and cause the nations to send wealth. The temple will be rebuilt with their funds. All right, This shows God's power over the nations, and it displays his glory. But now he's going to shake the heavens and the earth a second time. Okay, What is this one about? All right, He's going to shake them a second time. Well, it's to further show that God's power is demonstrated in the world by overthrowing the throne of kingdoms. He's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And you'll see that in the scripture that we just read a little while ago. Okay, This is destroy the strength of the kingdom of the nations. He's going to overthrow the chariots and the riders. Now the word overthrown carries some strong force with it. We see this word used in the, in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew and annihilated those cities. We see it used when God was going to destroy Nineveh and threatened to destroy Nineveh if they did not repent, that they were going to be overthrown if they did not come to God. And here it carries the same idea that God is going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. This is an overthrowing of many kingdoms, many powers, many nations, not just one as is the case with some prophecies. And there's no definite time stamp put on this, that he's going to, it just says he's going to do this, okay? It's relegated to the future, so we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. But the point is that God will overthrow the throne of these kingdoms. That is to say, the seat where royalty sits. The seat where royalty sits. These kings are going to be overthrown in their kingdoms. God is a divine warrior. Scripture paints this picture. Fighting for Judah. A divine warrior fighting for Judah, destroying the strength of these kingdoms and these nations. Okay? He will overthrow their chariots and riders. That's military force. The strength of them will be crushed. Okay? All these kingdoms will fall by the hand of God. And our Lord, He won't need to traverse the universe collecting infinity stones so that He has power to do this. He already contains all power. He shook the nations and caused them to subsidize and pay for the rebuilding of the temple. And now in the future, God is going to overthrow the nations and the kingdoms, kings and militaries, and bring them all into subjection. You must remember that Israel, they enjoyed special favor with God as his ethnic people. They were a chosen people for God's own very possession, chosen on earth, an ethnic people chosen to be God's representatives to the rest of the world. And they'd be the instrument through whom God would bring Jesus into the world, the Savior, our King. After Israel was freed from Egypt, God promised them, and I mentioned this many times before, that if they remained devoted to him, he would bless them, and if they turned from him, that he would strike their land with all kinds of curses and they would not produce. And we see some of that in Haggai, in Joel. We've seen it in a lot of different places in the Old Testament, okay? And this is one reason why we see Israel's enemies gain control over them and gain influence over them over and over again. It's not because Israel was weak. It was because God allowed them to succumb to that uh, oppression and God uh, removed his blessing from them. This was all God's doing. It's always when they disobeyed God. And so what we see is the Lord declaring that he's going to intervene on Judah's behalf. This isn't a battle that Judah will have to fight. It's one that God will fight which signals something big, something divine, something along the lines of a global judgment, not just a local judgment. What is striking is how their demise will be accomplished. The text goes on to say that the horses and riders will go down, that means they will die, all of them by the sword of his brother. 
In other words, the nations will be judged and brought down and destroyed because God will cause them to destroy themselves. Somehow, some way, everyone will die by the sword of his brother. Now, of course, this was for the future of Judah, and in some way, it's still future for us. We'll get to that in a little bit. In some way, this has already been partially fulfilled with Judah and for us. Okay? Again, swords are just another way of stating that they're weapons. They will use weapons to destroy each other. It doesn't necessarily mean that the final judgment, everybody's going to whip out their katana swords and start going to town. Okay? So this is not necessarily a little sword fight, but a militant type of thing going on. The overall passage, though, is emphasizing that when God reigns, the nations will crumble. All right? And we actually sang about that this morning in the first song. Do you remember that? When the nations crumble, all right? they will be brought down before him. Now, for a moment, this God, this God of ours who brings down nations, it should cause us to pause and reflect because this is speaking of finality. This is speaking of global cataclysm of all nations, no matter how rich, no matter how powerful, no matter how influential, no matter how old. We need to understand that at the return of Jesus, all nations will be destroyed. Then who will be spared? Only those within a particular nation, and that is the kingdom or the nation that belongs to Jesus Christ, the one who saves them from the judgment to come. Haggai serves as a warning to all people everywhere that judgment is coming in finality. And the only hope that any of us have is to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and subject ourselves to him and say, Lord, Jesus, you are my king. I submit to you. That's what repentance is. And I believe that you died and rose again for me, that you are are reigning right now on your throne and you are coming in finality to, to rule and reign on this planet physically, okay? So there's protection in God, protection in Christ, but destruction outside. Now, th- this, this idea that the nations are overthrown, uh, the, the prophet Daniel speaks of this in chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in this dream, there were, there were statues made of different metals and gold, silver, and bronze, and iron, and feet made of iron and part clay. And in this dream, there was a stone that was cut out and it was hurled at the statue, and it brought the statue down and crumbled and broke down everything. And the stone grew into a mountain that overtook the world. And this is speaking of the kingdom of Jesus, that all nations will bow down and crumble before our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how strong a nation is. We might be the number one nation in the world with most strength. I guarantee it will bow before Jesus. Okay? Don't go care how big China's military gets. It will bow before Jesus. You want to know the powerful nations that existed before it? The Egyptian empire, it bows before Jesus. The Assyrian empire bows before Jesus. They have been crushed. The Babylonian empire, they bow before Jesus. The Persian empire, it bows before Jesus. The Roman empire, it bows before Jesus. The nations crumble according to God's will when it is time for him to deal and dispense justice. The only ones that evade that justice are the ones who have found sanctuary and blessing in Jesus Christ. And so we see what this final passage in Haggai is all about, that nations will crumble. It's because when God's kingdom rises, the nations bow before him and they crumble. There's only really one uh, intent for God in creation And that is for God to rule over the entire thing with its citizens being loyal to him as he loves them. That's the point of the beginning of creation. And that is the point of the eternal state of creation, the final state. What went wrong in between the two, between the perfect beginning and the perfect end? What went wrong is that we sinned and rebelled against God. And we've been trying to create kingdoms that overthrow God's kingdom ever since, and it will not happen. It will not happen. It might look like it, but in finality, what we have here is God saying what is going to happen. And so the last verse really takes us to a place that many of us probably never expected at Haggai. Okay? We're going to look at that final part now. So point one, when God reigns, the nations are overthrown. Point two, as we look at the text, when God reigns, his kingdom rises. When God reigns, his kingdom rises. The prophet goes on to use the phrase, on that day. I spent some time going through uh, that phrase and what the day of the Lord means when I went through Joel, partially when I went through Malachi. 
but it's a huge indicator that this is a global judgment coming in finality. This phrase links the things to come that he's going to talk about in this last verse, what Haggai's talking about, with what was just said in the previous verses. So it's connecting what is about to be said, the shaking of the nations with the coming judgment. But this phrase is not just any phrase. Again, it's a phrase used to describe the day of the Lord, when he comes in final judgment. It's, a, it's an end time event, but not just an end time event in which God shakes the nations. If you remember when I taught through Joel, I told you and showed you that the day of the Lord is an often repeated event that has its final fulfillment when Christ restores creation, he saves us completely and judges unbelievers. That this happens over and over again. And if you remember when I taught through Malachi, I explained that this final day of the Lord, when, when Christ comes again, it was broken up into two parts, his first coming and his second coming, that this is all part of the day of the Lord. When Jesus establishes his kingdom through his death and resurrection, and then he comes again to bring final judgment and final salvation. And so all these things that we've been learning through Malachi and we've been learning through Joel are all be, to be used to help piece together our understanding of what Haggai is talking about, okay? This day of the Lord, final judgment, it's a day when God defeats all of his enemies and God wins final victory for his people. Because remember, the day of the Lord includes salvation and judgment. In Isaiah chapter 2, all idolaters, that is anyone who worships anything other than Yahweh, will flee from God's terror and they will try to hide in caves and caverns. They will abandon their worthless and powerless idols and it all happens on that day. In Jeremiah 25, Scripture says that the Lord will roar and he will bring an indictment against the nations and against the inhabitants of the earth. And he will judge the earth and he will go from nation to nation and bring disaster. And this will happen on that day. So when Haggai speaks of on that day when the nations will be shaken and overthrown, he's referring to the final judgment. He doesn't put a timestamp on it. What God says next to Zerubbabel is remarkable. He's going to take Zerubbabel and he calls him his servant, the son of Shealtiel, and make him like a signet ring for God has chosen him. What a mouthful and what a rich passage. All right? The, the word take... I'm going to take you means just that. But it's, it's used in particular ways in Scripture. It's used in situations in which God changes the status or the position of a person. The status or, status or the position of a person. Particularly, it's used when uh, someone in the Davidic lineage is anointed to be king. Right? God took David from shepherd to prince over Israel. God took him. In 2 Kings, when Josiah was killed in battle, Josiah's son was taken and anointed and made king. Right now, Zerubbabel is governor of Judah. He's called also son of Shealtiel. But God is going to take and alter Zerubbabel's status in some way. And we'll get to that in a second. Now, God calls Zerubbabel his servant. This is an important title as well. It's often used of godly men in Scripture as their life has ended or coming to an end, okay? Especially King David. David was the Lord's servant. Moses was the Lord's servant. Now, please keep in mind that this overthrowing of kingdoms, this overthrowing of kingdoms is in relation to what God is telling Zerubbabel. God is going to take all right, Zerubbabel and change his status, Zerubbabel, God's servant, the son of Shealtiel, all right? He's going to uh, take this governor. And so pay attention to the end of this prophecy. Special care needs to be taken to connect Zerubbabel to his ancestors, which we're going to do right now. Uh, this is probably the trickiest part of the sermon, the hardest part. It's a little intricate, but I'll have some slides up on the screen to help you make connection. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, I want you just to listen to these genealogies, okay? First Chronicles chapter 3, and we're going to make sense of it. It says this in verse 15. 
says, the sons of Josiah. Josiah was one of the kings of Israel. Johanan, the firstborn. The second, Jehoiakim. The third, Zedekiah. The fourth, Shalom. Then we see the descendants of Jehoiakim. Jeconiah, his son. Zedekiah, his son. And the sons of Jeconiah, the captive. Shealtiel, his son. That's Jeconiah's son. Malcarim, Padiah, Shenazar, Jechemiah, Hoshama, Nebadiah, and the sons of Padiah. And here's the sons of Padiah. Zerubbabel, and then it goes on to list others. Now you may be tempted to think for just a second, these are just boring genealogies. What do they have? They have nothing to do with me. I tell you they have everything to do with you because it has to do with Jesus. Okay? You're going to see the connection in just a second. Please try to follow along as best as possible, okay? So let's backtrack just a little bit. Where we're at in Haggai right now, let's put that on pause, okay? Just pause your VCR, all right? Something like, what's that, all right? Just hit pause, and we're going to come back to it. Let's change gears, okay? This is not a rabbit trail or a side trail that it is unimportant, okay? Why do we need to see Zerubbabel, and why is he called the son of Shealtiel? Why does it matter, Okay? Well, some of, some of you are familiar with King Josiah in the Old Testament. I just read from uh, 1 Chronicles 3 that he had four sons, okay? Josiah was an eight-year-old king of Judah, and Scripture says he did right in the eyes of God. He was the last good king of Judah. He had four sons. They should be listed on the screen at this time. And some of his sons had alternate names, and we're not going to get into that, okay? But Josiah was killed in battle. The Egyptians came along, and uh, were invading Judah, and Josiah was killed in battle. His youngest son then becomes king, and his name is Shalom. Okay? It should be purple, right? Yes. All right? Purple will designate royalty for our purposes this morning. Okay? Well, Shalom, right? They're dealing with the Egyptians at this time. He refuses to pay tribute to Egypt. So he's dethroned. And his brother, Jehoiakim, was now put in charge of Judah by the Egyptians. Jehoiakim pays the tribute to Egypt, and then he imposed a tax on Judah to pay for it. So the burden is put on him, now he's he's thrusting it onto the people. Jehoiakim is rebelling against God, and he's an evil ruler over Judah. And God sent the prophet Jeremiah to preach against him. Jehoiakim... All right, persecutes God's prophet Jeremiah. He burns Jeremiah's writings. He tries to imprison Jeremiah, but Jeremiah escapes. Well, while all this is going on, Babylon is rising to the top and becoming the world power. And they overthrow the Egyptians, okay? So Babylon comes onto the scene now. They're the world power, and, and Babylon makes Jehoiakim and Judah now submit for three years. But Jehoiakim, he gets a little rebellious, doesn't want to submit to Babylon, so he decides to rebel against them, and he declares independence. Babylon attacks Jerusalem for the first time. They capture Jehoiakim, they take him off into captivity, and he dies before getting to Babylon. Okay, So now Jehoiakim has been dethroned and killed. The next king to rule over Judah would be Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah. And you see the chain following down. Jeconiah continued, just like his father, to rebel against Babylon. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, is king of Babylon, he comes against Jerusalem a second time. He captures Jeconiah. And he carries him off into Babylon, carries him off into captivity. Because of Jeconiah's sins against God, God pronounced a curse upon Jeconiah and his sons. That's important to remember, okay? I'm going to read that text here in just a second. But pay attention to this text. And if you want, you can look with me in Jeremiah chapter 22. If you're able to get there quickly. Jeremiah 22, we're going to look at verses 24 through 30. So Jeconiah is the king been dethroned, Babylon has him, God's going to pronounce a curse upon him and his sons. But listen to the words in Jeremiah 22. They're going to sound familiar like Haggai. You're going to hear things like signet ring and the throne of David is in view and this lineage, okay? 
But Jeremiah 22 says this in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, that's Jeconiah, just an abbreviated version of it, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off. So envision God having a hand with a signet ring on it, and I'll explain what that means in just a second. I would tear you off, Jeconiah, and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. So quickly, God pronounces this curse that Jehoiakim, uh, Jeconiah is going to be carried off into another land, and him and his uh, initial descendants are not going to be allowed to return. Okay, Is this man, Jeconiah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they did not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down, Jeconiah, write him down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So because of Jeconiah's sin, this passage is stating that he's off the throne, going to die in a land that is not his own. His sons are going to be carried off and die in a land that is not his own, and none of them will succeed in the Davidic lineage in becoming king over Judah. You tracking so far? Okay. If you can't remember all the names, that's okay. But keep this prophecy in mind. Keep this prophecy in mind. So Jeconiah is removed. His son's never going to be king. Well, Who's going to be king now? Well, now Zedekiah is going to become king. This is one of Josiah's other sons, okay? So two attacks have taken place on Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, he places Zedekiah on the throne in Jerusalem. Zedekiah tries to make plans to break free from Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah is still around, though, and he was sent to preach that, listen, listen, Zedekiah, this is God's discipline on you. You're not going to escape it. But Zedekiah continues to rebel and try to escape God's discipline and escape Nebuchadnezzar coming against him. But Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem a third time. This time, they destroyed Jerusalem completely. One hit, two hit, three hits, and they're out. Okay? The city is torn down. The wall surrounding Jerusalem is torn down. Okay? The temple is completely destroyed. And they are all carried off into captivity for 70 years, right? We know this part. Hopefully, it's been repeated enough, okay? And I shared before with you how Judah was, uh, was sacked and Jerusalem was sacked in three different phases. And this is how it all went down. Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, and Zedekiah, all rebelling against Babylon, pummeled three times, finally brought down. Now Judah has no king. Judah has no city, no Jerusalem. Judah has no temple. Do do you see the awful state they are in? Now they're in 70 years of captivity until God decides that punishment would end. That's when the Persian kings come along. They overthrow the Babylonians. They issue a decree that they can go back home and rebuild their temple. And then the second king pays for it. Okay, the rebuilding of it. All this stuff we've been talking about. But all this shows that God is a sovereign the sovereign king over the entire globe, the entire nations of the world, okay? But right now, Judah would not be a sovereign nation. They they had no other kings for the foreseeable future, no one to rule. Zedekiah was the last of the Old Testament kings of Judah, the last of the kings in the Old Testament. So now when we're in Haggai, we see that there's no king. Who is there? There's this guy named Zerubbabel, and he's a governor. He's governor of Judah under Persian rule, okay? Not Babylonian rule, but now Persian rule. He's one of the main guys in Haggai, Zerubbabel. 
When you look at 1 Chronicles 3, that, that lineage that I read before, that genealogy, we see that Jeconiah had some sons. They were carried off into captivity and who would not sit on the throne. One of those sons' names was Shealtiel. Who we, that's why uh, Zerubbabel is continually called son of Shealtiel. Okay? What's interesting in that genealogy is it doesn't list any sons from Shealtiel. He had no sons. But technically, this guy Shealtiel, he's in the Davidic lineage, and he could have been king except for God's curse that none of Jeconiah's sons would inherit the throne. So Shealtiel can't become king, okay? Now, if you notice in Haggai, it is said that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Biologically, that's not true, okay? Biologically. It is true that he's son of Shealtiel, but biologically, he's not, okay? When you read the genealogies, you see that Zerubbabel was actually son of a guy named Padiah. Padiah, okay? So why, I mean... I know there's unbelievers out there, ah, your scripture is full of contradictions. Stop, okay? It's not. There's very good reasons why this could be taking place. Let me give you a couple. Why would Zerubbabel be linked with Shealtiel, Shealtiel being his father? It could be a couple reasons. It could be that Zerubbabel was the biological son of Padiah, which he was, but maybe Shealtiel raised Zerubbabel. Maybe he raised him for some reason, like we see Mordecai raising Esther, okay? Or, and this is very likely, it could be that Shealtiel died before he could have kids, before he could have a son. And if you remember when we were, I believe it was going through Ruth, we talked about the law that Israel had, that if you died without having any kids and you had a brother, your, your brother was to take your widowed wife, sire a child with her, so that that family name might go on. And so it's very possible, leveret marriage is what it's called, that, that he took his brother's widow, made her his own wife, had a kid with her, and he gave the son of his brother's name to the family. So now that he is son of Shealtiel. That's very possible. So these are not contradictions. These are not errors. There are plausible situations that, is, that don't stretch the text. But the Bible doesn't actually say why he's called the son of Shealtiel. But we know there are valid reasons that it could have been. But we see here, Shealtiel being the son of Jeconiah, he can't become king. He couldn't inherit the throne. And so it would need to be someone from Shealtiel's lineage that would have to continue in the Davidic lineage. We don't know why he was transferred. Zerubbabel was to Shealtiel's lineage, but we know that he was. And so you need to recall from Jeremiah, God says that I would rip you off of my finger, talking about Jeconiah, as a signet ring. You're my signet ring, and I would just rip you off and hurl you into another country, right? The signet ring is a symbol or a sign of the king. So let me explain this, and you're going to see how it pieces together. The signet ring is a symbol or a sign, signet, sign for the king. Whoever wore the ring was able to act on behalf of the king with the king's authority, you got that part so far? Give me a nod. All right, cool. Whoever wore the ring was the vice regent or representative of the king, a symbol, a sign of the king. And you have to understand that this is, this is what the kings of Israel really were. God was ultimately the authority over Israel, the true king of Israel. And so these kings just acted as representatives of God to the world, acting on his behalf and with his authority, with God backing them. And so we see that Zerubbabel is governor, not king. And he would never be king because Judah was under the Persian rule and, and no longer a sovereign nation. You can see that right in the story that I'm telling, the history that I'm telling. Um, he could never be king, Zerubbabel. He's governor. He's ruling in some way, but not king because they got Persian king Darius over them. Okay? But Zerubbabel, he's made it alive out of captivity and God is going to do something new in Zerubbabel's day. He's going to restore this, the, the signet ring status to Zerubbabel. In other words, on that day, on the day of judgment, when God comes to rule and reign, it will be obvious to all that Zerubbabel was meant to foreshadow the reign of God over all the earth. He's acting as God's authority. He was there to signify God's reign on earth. 
to serve as a sign of the king that would come for the Jews. And this lineage has been ongoing for some time. And it's been put on halt, this kingly lineage, as they were in captivity. But now, for some of you, the light is starting to come on, if it hasn't already. This signet ring symbolizes God rules and reigns on earth. Now, you may recall in the New Testament that the Jews have been waiting for the king to arrive, right? Finally, a king is going to come and liberate us from all the oppression and subjugation. And they're waiting for God to shake the nations. Judah's been waiting. When is God going to liberate us from the nations and bring final victory? There hasn't been a king in Judah for 600 years now, according to our timeline here. And 400 of those years were met in total silence from God between Old and New Testament. No prophets, no miracles, no fresh revelation, just God being silent and the people waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a king. Is it any wonder that Matthew's gospel was written primarily to show the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel? And he would liberate them from ultimate oppression, not just from the nations, but from sin and Satan. And you can see why the disciples are so eager for Jesus just to kick butt on everybody, right? They're just, this is the one that's coming. But I want to read to you Matthew chapter 1. If you want, flip over there. Or you can just listen to the genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. We know that. We just read all that. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. But let me insert a phrase here. But where is the king? He's governor, but where's the king? Zerubbabel then is the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. But where is the king? And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. Where is the king? And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matin. And Matin, the father of Jacob. Where, where is the king? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. There he is. There's our king. There's Judah's king. Is it any wonder that wise men come from the east seeking the king of the Jews when his star appeared in the sky? Is it any wonder that Matthew starts not with boring genealogies, but with evidence and lineage that proves that Jesus is the long-awaited king and the Lion of Judah? Is it any wonder now that Zerubbabel here in Haggai is meant to reinstate the lineage of the king until the king came? Is it any wonder now that Zerubbabel was meant to signify Jesus' reign on earth as he overthrows the nations in finality and finalizes his kingdom once and for all at the end of this era. You have to understand that when Jesus came, that day started. His kingdom was being built and people are being converted from all tribes and all tongues and all nations and they're becoming subject to Jesus Christ. And like that stone that was hurled at that statue and destroyed it, it is growing and growing and growing. And like that mustard seed, it is growing. And though it is the smallest of seeds, it is growing and growing and growing until it overtakes everything. All kingdoms are being subjected to Jesus Christ. That is what happens in, at the end of Scripture, in finality, and that's what we see taking place at the end of Haggai, that there is no kingly status. There is no representative here on the earth in this time of Haggai where God is showing his authority. So he says, Zerubbabel, you're going to be like my signet ring. I'm going to show that my authority is back in, in, in place, back in action. My plan never deviated. It just looked like it was while you were in captivity. Is it any wonder then that we can see now in Scripture why the temple needed to be rebuilt? God said, I'm going to visit it with glory. And he did in Jesus Christ. 
We needed a high priest to come and to fulfill all of its pictures and offices and, and displays. Is it any wonder then why God is doing this? He's reestablishing the Davidic line of whom Jesus descended from. God is bringing back into focus all that he's promised concerning the king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. You see, Haggai is not about, it's not really about a building project, although it seems like it. On the surface, it's always been about Christ and his reign. God rules. He rules the nations and his leaders. They do not rule. They rule under his authority. There is but one sovereign ultimate authority in the universe, and it is God. Other kings don't ultimately have rule. Other presidents do not ultimately have rule. Other prime ministers and governors don't ultimately rule. God does, and he reigns forever. And he shakes the nations to bring them under his dominion as they always have been. And his ultimate goal has always been to make a kingdom of people, a kingdom of people from all over the world, a nation a royal nation, a holy nation from all over the world that is comprised of citizens from all nations. A kingdom of people that believe in Christ as Savior, the God-man, the Messiah. And this kingdom will never be shaken. We're going to read from Hebrews in a second. Hebrews 12. You can jump there if you want to. We'll get there in just a second. But this kingdom will not be shaken because Almighty God rules over it. It will never cease. This kingdom will include Jews and non-Jews. And the kingdom of Christ will dwell on earth with Jesus forever as king. Church, that is what Haggai is about. All scripture is about Jesus. It was around, gosh, 2004 that I became fully convinced that all scripture was about Jesus and not just the Old Testament was about the Jewish people with some prophecies about Jesus sprinkled here or there. And ever since then, I've been trying to preach Christ from all scripture and then sometimes I get to a passage of scripture, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm wrong on this one. It certainly can't be about Jesus. And I tell you, I am still in awe and dumbfounded at every text I preach from the Old Testament as I see it connected to Christ. Make yourself, let your yes be yes and your no be no, but make an oath that you will never be a part of a church that does not preach Christ-centered sermons. Some of you will move from here, and this isn't even part of my sermon. This is just Pastor Josh talking to you. <laughs> as a father would to his daughter or son. Don't ever be a part where Jesus is just sprinkled in at the end and he's not the focus of the entire sermon, the point of it, the end of it, the all of it, okay? You, you come to hear the word preached so that your faith is nourished, so that you walk away more confident that you are trusting the right person to save you, okay? That's why you come on Sunday morning, to have your faith nourished, and you will not have your faith nourished. You will not be stronger leaving here if Christ is not exalted. If your temporary uh, man-centered needs are the only thing that are addressed, you will go away loving yourself more. And you don't come here to love you more. You come here to love God more. Okay? But this kingdom will never cease. That's what Haggai is about. Start to finish. I promise you that as long as I'm here, Steve is here, and John is here, we will do our best to show you Christ in all of Scripture. You see, the, the king of the Jews, he's our king as well. He's sitting right now at the right hand of God, and he rules now, and he's coming to set up his throne on the earth. So take heart, church. Your king is coming. Take heart, because righteousness will be established on this earth one day. It is here now, and it is coming in fullness. Take heart. Your true, your true and eternal ruler is alive and he is well right now. Though you can't see him, he sees you. He knows your afflictions and he's coming to rescue us. Take heart because your king, the meek lamb, he was slain for your sins. But he's not just a meek lamb. He's the mighty lion of Judah and he will destroy Satan and he will continue to, Satan will continue to persecute the church but he will not go unpunished. He will be cast into the lake of fire for rebelling against his creator. Take heart because Jesus reigns. Haggai is meant to point us there through the rebuilding of the temple and through Zerubbabel. And so we must always be busy doing the Lord's work because that's the work that, that lasts. That's the only work that will endure. 
You will not labor in vain if you work for the kingdom and work for your king Jesus. In fact, Jesus says you are to seek his kingdom, what, last? When you've got everything done that you want to do in life? And when you have time, seek his kingdom first. And all these things will be added unto you. Stop seeking after worldly things. God will take care of those things for you. He's not going to leave you begging. Seek after his kingdom first. These are all things that Haggai teaches us because it's all centered around Christ who reigns. In short, Haggai is a prophecy meant to erect a building that points to Jesus and erect a leader that points to Jesus. And so I have to point to Jesus too. And if you're not a Christian and you're watching online or in present here in person, you must not forget that Jesus is coming to shake the nations and to bring judgment upon all who rebel against him. The only way to be saved from this shaking, from this judgment, is to turn from your sin and to believe that Christ took your punishment by dying on the cross and to believe that he rose again, that he might be proven to be king and judge and sinless so that you can know you're trusting the right person to save you, the only one who can forgive you and the only one who can give you eternal life. But you must come to Christ. You must become his friend, his, his, one of his, by trusting him to save you and by calling upon him to save you as you turn and stop, turn to him and stop rebelling against him. This is the reality that we live in. Everything that I spoke of today was grounded in past history, things that actually happened and were foretold of that actually happened. You can trust that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do, because what he said he would do, he's already done. If you doubt that Christ is coming again, just look how much was said about his first coming before he came. You can trust Scripture. He is coming again to judge and to save. So please, turn from your sin and trust Jesus to save you. Salvation has never been nearer to you than it is right now. Our Lord is calling you to repent and to believe. Christ commands you to come to him. Don't put it off any longer. Repent and believe. Let's look at Hebrews 12, and we will end with this scripture. Hebrews 12, verse 18 through 29. It says this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. It indicates, again, the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You don't want to be a part of the shaking, because that is God judging the nations and removing them. As Malachi talks about, as Joel talks about, as Haggai talks about, there is a shaking, a judgment, a fiery furnace, a judgment from God coming and it will eradicate all wicked people from God's presence forevermore. The only thing that will be left are those things that cannot be shaken. That is, those who are part of the kingdom of Jesus. And that's how Haggai ends, with us pointing to one who is representing on earth God as a vice regent. Zerubbabel is there to stand and say, God reigns. I'm just going to be here to speak for him until God comes in the flesh 
Jesus began his reign when he died and rose again. On that day, the nations have started to crumble. And they are crumbling now. And they will crumble in finality when he initiates that final shaking. And brothers and sisters, we will be standing looking at each other, looking around in awe at God, at each other like, I can't believe we survived that. And we will say, all glory goes to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand with you.